to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, today, in celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration, we come to a high point on the Church's liturgical calendar. For today's celebration gives us a prophetic glimpse of the underlying reality which our Lord has gone to such lengths to describe verbally through the parables concerning the Kingdom of God, which we have heard and discussed over the last three Sundays. Said differently, this feast has a recapitulatory quality to it. For in a sense, the transfiguration of Jesus gathers up and explains all that has come before it, such that by witnessing the transfiguration, we witness the truth underlying the parables and the purpose of our created existence. The recapitulatory nature of this feast gives it added depth and complexity. This is seen in the fact that several historical strands can be tied together by it, serving for each of them as a point of reference. For, as we will see, the transfiguration was prefigured in various events of Jewish history, demonstrating how the God of Jesus Christ had been walking with the human family all along, continually instructing them and pointing them to the end for which they had been made and gathered, an end revealed most eloquently in the life of Christ. That said, the very profundity of the event should immediately cast from our minds any illusion that our consideration of it will be exhaustive. As we set foot on the Mount of the Transfiguration, we set foot on holy ground, for we step before the presence of God. Therefore, our contemplation of the Transfiguration is the contemplation of heaven. It is a glimpse of the beatific vision rendered tolerable for fallen human eyes in order to awaken us to the beauty of our God and His unfathomable love for us so that we might love Him more completely in return. The recapitulatory nature of the Transfiguration confronts us in the opening words of the 17th chapter of Matthew's Gospel and thereby sets the stage for us. The opening verse reads, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain apart. The Lucan account is contextually identical but adds a detail of importance for our understanding of this episode. Luke tells us that Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up the mountain with him to pray. This detail provided to us by Luke denotes a liturgical dimension in the event. Consequently, it gives us a direction as to where we ought to look to find our proper context, and thus immediately begs the question, six days after what? All three synoptic gospels place the transfiguration immediately after Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Son of God. Here looking to the Jewish liturgical calendar is helpful. The span of six days between the two events fits perfectly with the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. This reading is given further credibility by Peter's response to the Transfiguration. For when Moses and Elijah appear conversing with Christ, Peter suggests that they make three booths, one for each of them. 
suggesting that this Feast of Tabernacles was very much on his mind. The Feast of Tabernacles has a twofold significance in the life of the Jewish people. First, in chapter 34 of Exodus, we are told that it is a festival of ingathering, or what we might call a harvest festival, celebrating God's care for the human family via the fruits of the earth. The second significance is related to the first, but adds more spiritual depth. This festival is a commemoration of the Exodus event, standing as an annual reminder to subsequent generations that God made the people of Israel live in booths, that is, tabernacles, or sukkah, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Accordingly, we might say that the Feast of Tabernacles commemorates both God's care for the people of Israel, and as it is a harvest festival, his intention to unite the whole human family through the life of his chosen people, a reading which fits well with our stated theme of recapitulation. We find further strands to gather up if we turn to consider the two individuals who appear alongside Christ amidst his transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. These two are monumental figures in the history of Israel, and in turn, our own history. Together they represent the law and the prophets. Their appearance with Jesus signifies something that was of the utmost importance for the early church and must remain so for us today, which is that the Old Testament, or Hebrew Scriptures, because inspired by the Holy Spirit, speak of the activity of the same God who became incarnate in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. For example, in Book 4 of his work Against Heresies, St. Irenaeus wrote that the Son of God's incarnation, death, and resurrection fulfilled the law and vindicated the prophets. In a similar vein, Origen wrote that the beginning of the gospel is nothing but the whole Old Testament. Thus, the great tradition passes on to us the understanding that the true depth of the Old Testament can only be seen in light of Christ, who was both the key to unlocking their richness, as Origen says, and the treasure hidden therein, as Irenaeus puts it. Individually, the figure of Moses provides an Old Testament parallel to the transfiguration itself. For instance, God's giving the law to Moses also takes place on a mountain. Moreover, in chapter 24 of Exodus, we read that Moses, like Jesus, goes up the mountain with three companions, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Additionally, both events take place on the seventh day, and both portray God as speaking out of a cloud. Moreover, both accounts describe the radiant glory of God made manifest at the time. The Exodus account tells us that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. Finally, after Moses came down from the mountain where he had met with God, the skin of his face was shining, a direct parallel with our Lord's transfiguration, and a phenomenon which draws similar reactions from both the people of Israel and the disciples, that is, one of fear. Nor was this the only time the face of Moses would become radiant with the glory of God. This happened whenever he entered God's presence and conversed with him, giving us an added connection to the detail provided to us by Luke that it was in the context of prayer that our Lord was transfigured. That said, there is one very important difference to note when comparing the radiance of Moses and that of Jesus in these two episodes, which will be crucial to keep in mind when we turn to consider how it is that we fit into all this further on. As the late Joseph Ratzinger noted in the second volume of his work, Jesus of Nazareth, In the case of Moses, the light that causes him to shine comes upon him from the outside, so to speak. Jesus, however, shines from within. He does not simply receive light, but he himself is light from light. Turning now to briefly discuss the prophetic tradition represented by Elijah, we might consider the words of two prophets. 
The first is Daniel, from whose book our first reading for today comes. Although Daniel's work is more strictly considered apocalyptic literature, there is nevertheless a prophetic element to the visions described therein, especially when read in light of the transfiguration. In verse 9 of chapter 7, Daniel describes a vision of the Ancient One taking his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. In verses 13 and 14, Daniel adds that he saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. If we read this in light of today's gospel, several noteworthy items appear. First, we have two figures, the Ancient One and the Son of Man, who in today's gospel appear as the Father and the Son. However, notice how in the gospel, the Son has the appearance of the Father as envisioned by Daniel, signifying to us their inseparable unity. Notice too that in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man comes in the glory of his kingdom to rule over things. We find a direct connection to today's gospel by considering that immediately prior to the section read today, Jesus told his disciples that there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. While some had wondered if Jesus meant that some of the disciples would not die before the resurrection of the dead, in light of Daniel it becomes quite obvious that this glimpse of heaven given to Peter, James, and John is the sighting of the kingdom Jesus spoke of. The second prophet to discuss today is Isaiah. In the latter part of the book that bears his name, Isaiah foretold of a suffering servant of God, who would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, upon whom would be laid the punishment that made us whole. The Lucan account gives the prophet's message its vindication. For Luke tells us that as Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, they spoke of his exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem, referring to the crucifixion. This connection makes explicit what is expressed in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, that the crucifixion is the hour when the Son of Man is glorified. Thus, as counterintuitive as it sounds, we can in a very real way say that what we see in the transfiguration is the reality of the crucifixion. And the reason is that, in a fallen world which has rejected the love of God, the glory of God's complete and selfless love is seen most clearly in His unwavering and boundless love for the human family on the cross. If we take this one step further and recall the words of St. Irenaeus, that the glory of God is a living man, and the life of man consists in beholding God, it becomes apparent that the Son of Man, stretched out upon the cross and gazing heavenward, saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, is the most fully alive human being this earth has ever witnessed. There is a second connection to draw between the prophet Isaiah and our Lord's transfiguration before moving on. In his own interpretation of the event in Sermon 78, St. Augustine interpreted the radiance of Christ's clothes as signifying the church's transfiguration. In chapter 2 of his own work, Isaiah prophesied that in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. In the transfiguration, then, we glimpse not only the full glorification of the Son of God incarnate, but the transfiguration God intends to effect in the body of Christ, the church, as well. 
We experience the transfiguration of the church whenever we gather in the presence of our Lord and hear him proclaimed in scripture and receive his very life in the Eucharist. But this is not only a transfiguration we are meant to experience corporately. Instead, the transfiguration of the church demands that her individual members be transfigured as well. The ongoing transfiguration of the individual members of Christ is known as sanctification or deification and begins with our passing through the sacred waters of baptism. There, as we are submerged and rise again three times, united to the incarnate Son in his death, resurrection, and ascension, the fuel that is the Imago Dei stamped upon our nature is ignited into flame by the Holy Spirit. The Orthodox Saint Nicholas Cabasilas calls baptism illumination. Since it confers true being, it makes men known to God. Because it leads to that light, it removes darkness and wickedness. The very symbols used within the rite itself communicate to us the transfiguration taking place. For instance, upon clothing the newly baptized with a white garment, the minister says to him or her, You have become a new creation and have clothed yourself in Christ. See in this white garment the outward sign of your Christian dignity. Bring that dignity unstained into the everlasting life of heaven. Next, the flame from the Easter candle, which symbolizes Christ, who is the true light who enlightens every man, is transferred to the newly baptized candle, signifying the illumination taking place within them. Finally, there is the prayer over the baptized's ears and mouth in order that they might come alive to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, who gives hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind, and life to the dead. Thus, in a very real way, the Feast of the Transfiguration is the Feast of our Transfiguration. Therefore, as we gaze upon the transfigured Christ, we gaze, as it were, into a mirror, which displays to us the completion of our transfiguration begun in the waters of baptism. However, for the transfiguration to continue, we must cooperate with the grace we receive in baptism and all the other sacraments in the life of the Church, most especially the Eucharist, which fills us with the very life of the Incarnate Son. In contrast, to receive the action and life of Christ in the sacraments and to fail at striving to live as Christ is nothing less than the abuse of these very same sacraments. To be sure, none of us will live without sin this side of eternity, but acknowledging this is no excuse for not doing everything we can to cooperate with the grace we receive. So we might ask ourselves in closing, how do we know if we are cooperating with God's grace so as to be increasingly transfigured into the life of Christ. Look to the Beatitudes. The late great Joseph Ratzinger called the Beatitudes a sort of veiled interior biography of Jesus, a kind of portrait of his figure. The Beatitudes then can serve as a set of guidelines for us when it comes to measuring the process of our ongoing transfiguration. We can ask ourselves, are we humble? Do we mourn for our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of our world? Are we meek, that is, do we spend time learning everything we can about Jesus, most especially in Scripture? Do we hunger and thirst for a just world, for a world to be ordered according to the twofold love of God and neighbor? Are we merciful to those who offend us? Are we clean of heart? That is, do we strive to live life in such a way that all we do is done for the one thing necessary, loving communion with God? Do we work for peace in our world? And finally, are we willing to bear the abuse that so often comes with living as Christ lives? That is, do we have a martyr's heart that fears nothing 
except to be separated from Christ? When we frame the Beatitudes of Jesus as questions, they become a measuring stick for evaluating the ongoing process of transfiguration in our lives, both setting the standard for our cooperation with grace and determining which areas of our lives need more focus and effort. My friends, in the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain, we glimpse our own transfiguration. As members of his body, the church, we are meant to experience a transfiguration like we see taking place in the incarnate Son today. Yet this is a transfiguration that takes place slowly and over the course of a lifetime. We have discussed how this transfiguration begins with our participation in the paschal mystery of Christ through the saving waters of baptism. Moreover, we have seen that the dynamics of the sacrament of baptism very clearly remind us that, like Moses, our transfiguration is always derived from the outside. In and of ourselves, we simply do not have the resources to transfigure ourselves. Only God's grace, won for us by Christ, can transfigure us into the creatures we have been created to be, creatures whose very lives magnify the glory of God. Thus, like Moses, we need to return time and again into the immediate presence of God by contemplating the scriptures and participating in the liturgy of the church, most especially that of the Eucharist, which most perfectly unites us to him who took on all that we have in order to bestow upon us all that he is. Moreover, we have discussed how our ongoing transfiguration demands that these sacraments not merely be received, but lived. When we cooperate with God's action within us and strive to live as Christ lived, we are slowly transfigured into more perfect members of his body, and thereby we make our way from glory to glory on our earthly pilgrimage, slowly making our way to our heavenly homeland, where all will be fully united and perfectly transfigured in Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.